Hello everyone, Kyle here. Welcome to our very first installment of Kyle's Communist Book Club. As you may have heard from our trailer, the first book we're reading is Svetlana Alexevich's Secondhand Time, The Last of the Soviets. Before we dive into this episode, I can't help but say I recorded this episode on January 5th, 2021, the day before America experienced its first aggressive coup. That changed the tone of this episode for me in a way because I think I moved from simply empathizing to sympathizing. I sat there with a historian's eye and watched live feeds from both individuals on the scene with their camera phones to news networks report on the United States Capitol building being invaded by Trump supporters. That's going to be very relevant to this series because we'll be looking at cults of personality. Specifically, we'll see as Svetlana begins to illustrate in chapter one, a timeline of Russian history, specifically after the fall of Stalin. Pardon me, Stalin's death. That little interplay of words is going to be relevant because Nikita Khrushchev, who becomes the next general secretary begins a process of de-Stalinization or the removal of cult thinking. This is sometimes referred to as the thaw. Things were starting to warm up and people were able to speak. We're experiencing our own version of this right now, many, many, many years later. It's unique in terms of geography, mindset, technology, and more. Those points being noted, we can learn so much by looking into our past. Where did people come from? How did they feel during these events? What motivated them? That's why we're reading this book. If you're coming to this podcast with the idea that communism is evil, you've come into the wrong place. If you've come to this podcast looking for hardcore, thick literature, I'll just say straight up, I'm not that guy and I don't want to portray that. In this series, we're going to be talking from a very humanitarian space. We're talking from the heart. In writing... I'm piecing together the history of domestic interior socialism as it existed in a person's soul. I've always been drawn to this miniature expanse. One person, the individual, it's where everything really happens. I personally couldn't agree more with her assessment. It's this notion that we're all human and we all have love, loss, hate, fear, happiness, all of these emotions swirl around. We experience some degree of these at all points of our lives. It's why I don't think we can look at the Soviet Union from a Western lens and call it a complete failure, as so many are prone to do. If you are in this westernized world, you're very familiar with how we use the word communism synonymously with the devil. The sheer fact that people tried a new system was enough of a reason for them to fail. Because they thought outside of the box, it was enough of a reason for them to fail. And shame on them for even trying. That's the sort of ideology we're going to be working on breaking and, if you will, having our own thaw here. We're going to share stories that are both for and against. We're going to hear why. We're going to see the motivators in these people's lives. And thank goodness this book is here to share them with us. There are so many wonderful accounts. So bear with us. These first couple are going to take an anti-communist lens. However, 
as we get further into the book, that will change at times, interchangeably. You're going to hear it both out of the same speaker's mouth, one sentence after the next. It's okay to both love a system and also hate the people that managed it. You're going to hear that quite a lot. Let's continue setting the stage for this book. Remarks from an accomplice. We're paying our respects to the Soviet era. Cutting ties with our old life, I'm trying to honestly hear out all the participants of the socialist drama. Communism had an insane plan to remake the old breed of man, ancient Adam. And it really worked. Perhaps it was communism's only achievement. Seventy-plus years in the Marxist-Leninist laboratory gave rise to a new man, Homo Sovieticus. Some see him as a tragic figure. Others call him a Sovok. I feel like I know this person. We're very familiar. We've lived side by side for a long time. I am this person, and so are my acquaintances, my closest friends, my parents. For a number of years, I traveled throughout the former Soviet Union. Homo Sovieticus isn't just Russian. He's Belarusian, Turkmen, Ukrainian, Kazakh. Although we now live in separate countries and speak different languages, you couldn't mistake us for anyone else. We're easy to spot. People who've come out of socialism are both like and unlike the rest of humanity. We have our own lexicon, our own conceptions of good and evil, our heroes, our martyrs. We have a special relationship with death. And we will continue to talk about that death throughout this series, throughout this podcast. So I will just place a general warning here at the very start. Soviet history comes from a place of tragedy in many ways. The Soviet ideology in itself was born into fruition out of the failings of the Tsar, who, through terrible mismanagement, not only on his coronation day, ignored the deaths of people that came out to view him, not only took command of the army during World War I, failed miserably and was blamed for that, but also was the leader at the time that peasant revolts were forcibly suppressed through gunfire outside of the Winter Palace. The Soviet era was born from bloodshed. It was born as a backlash to poor management, to underappreciation and harsh working rights towards the people. It was formed because of necessity of exacerbation, of not having an answer for what to do next as the hope of the people to do something better. It's not even far after the birth of the Soviet Union that Russia faces World War II, which will play a very large part of this series. The bloodshed from that war alone changed the landscape as entire villages of people were wiped out. Entire families went off to war never to return. Why does this book contain so many stories of suicides instead of more typical Soviets with typically Soviet life stories? When it comes down to it, people end their lives for love, from fear of old age, or just out of curiosity from a desire to come face to face with the mystery of death. I sought out people who had been permanently bound to the Soviet idea, letting it penetrate them so deeply that there was no separating them. The state had become their entire cosmos, 
blocking out everything else, even their own lives. They couldn't just walk away from history, leaving it all behind and learning to live without it. Diving headfirst into the new way of life and dissolving into private existence, like so many others who now allowed what used to be minor details to become their big picture. Today, people just want to live their lives. They don't need some great idea. This is entirely new for Russia. It's unprecedented in Russian literature. At heart, we're built for war. We were always either fighting or preparing to fight. We've never known anything else. Hence our wartime psychology. Even in civilian life, everything was always militarized. The drums were beating. The banners flying. Our hearts leaping out of our chests. People didn't recognize their own slavery. They even liked being slaves. I remember it well. After we finished school, we'd volunteer to go on class trips to the Virgin Lands. And we'd look down on the students who didn't want to come. In that clip, we just heard about the idea of great ideas. Large unifying themes, such as these leaps forward, we're all going to work towards a communal goal. Something we really lack these days. That's going to play a big part in this as well, as collectivization and a communal aspect was at the core of the Soviet Union. Collectivization came about at great expenses. It also came about out of necessity. In that clip, we hear about people becoming inward focused, that they just want to live their lives, that they don't need any great idea. I'm not sure how much I believe in that, though, these days. I feel like I'm watching the world spiral out, that everyone is so spread out in ideas, that we're so siloed in a way, that we're letting mistruths govern us. I know I'm interjecting a lot of our current politics into this, but I think that is the point. Look at our world and see we're not working for the betterment of humanity right now. Let's continue as we go through to see some more of this. I also want to take a moment to define a term you may have heard earlier, savok. Savok is a derogatory term specifically for people that either continue having a Soviet idea or following the communist ideology. It's used to shame folks that are stuck in those ways. In some senses, I want to wear that as a uh, word of honor in these times, that I want to see the world better itself, that I want to see communal goals come back. I want to see people working to fix things like homelessness. Accompanying that, I will say, none of this came at an easy price. There was a lot of bloodshed. Though as I tried to summarize earlier, it came out of necessity. The world was changing and Russia was left behind. Academics will say that Russia was about 100 to 200 years behind the, quote, modern world or leading countries at the time. The theme of Russia being left behind compared to the West is not one that just begins around the Soviet time. It tracks back even further. But this idea that they needed to catch up. Most of the country was living in peasant conditions in what is referred to as backwater areas. Villages that had little to no formal infrastructure not compared to the industrialized world. This attempt at a, a great leap to catch up 
had human tools at the same time, they overcame great obstacles. The stories people tell me are full of jarring terms. Shoot, execute, liquidate, eliminate, or typically Soviet varieties of disappearance, such as arrest. Ten years without the right of correspondence. And emigration. How much can we value human life when we know that not long ago people had died by the millions? We're full of hatred and superstitions. All of us come from the land of the gulag and harrowing war. Collectivization, dekulakization, mass deportations of various nationalities. This was socialism, but it was also just everyday life. Back then, we didn't talk about it very much. Now that the world has transformed irreversibly, everyone is suddenly interested in that old life of ours. Whatever it may have been like, it was our life. That says a lot. Specifically, the end of that quote really hits home right now. How much of our government's misdeeds are completely packaged to us in a way that we just don't look at it, just don't see it, just don't talk about it? As we get at in this book, I think there is a real human element that many of us have lost. Or if you're listening to this podcast, you may be in search of. I think many of us are jaded now, either because we were born into a capitalist system that told us that anything communist, anything socialist, anything about helping one another is evil. I come into this podcast with that baggage that I was brought up with the stylings that you need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It's only you. There shouldn't be a big government to help you. There shouldn't be a system in place to assist you if you're down and out. As an adult, as a business owner, a tax-paying business owner, I personally disagree with that on so many levels. Safety nets are great. Safety nets shouldn't only exist if you need them. I come into it with these mindsets. I'll be grappling with them throughout as we listen to pros and cons. I'll be looking for ways that I can change my own thinking. When we come at this, when we listen to these stories, we have to remember that we are separated by not only time from when these stories came about. Some of these will be happening from people that specifically lived and helped build the union while Stalin was in power to others who were born at the very end and only briefly lived under it. Time adds a lot. It adds perspective. It changes things. Mass production of items now is completely different. Cell phones exist. That changes our lives in a huge way. As we're reading these stories, keep those things in mind. People nowadays, when debunking communism, will often use our abundance of commercial goods as an excuse for us not to be investing in our future as a people, in education, in healthcare, in housing. As we listen to these stories, take note of those that felt like they had a good life. Listen to the ones that were unhappy and hear why. It's reading between the lines in these stories that I think will give us one of the biggest boons of knowledge. I don't ask people about socialism. I want to know about love, jealousy, childhood, old age, music dances, hairdos, the myriad sundry details of a vanished way of life. It's the only way to chase the catastrophe into the contours of the ordinary and try to tell a story, make some small discovery, 
it never ceases to amaze me how interesting everyday life really is. There is an endless number of human truths. History is concerned solely with the facts. Emotions are outside of its realm of interest. In fact, it's considered improper to admit feelings into history. But I look at the world as a writer and not a historian. I am fascinated by people. As am I. And with that being said, let's enter what the book calls Part 1, The Consolation of Apocalypse. In this chapter, our speaker talks about being a dreamer. They talk about the aspect of the human race that wants things to be done for us without even trying. This is something I'm sure many of us can understand. She mentions the idea of wanting to have the sauce cook itself while you lay on the couch. How this influences us. How we sometimes feel like we're doing action and making changes when we're actually just sitting around and hoping for a better tomorrow. What does that inaction bring us? The speaker says, quote, All the while we consider ourselves a special, exceptional people, end quote. And that the mysterious Russian soul, everyone wants to understand it. These ideas tie together. The ideas of people, people wishing for things, wanting change, enacting change, or the lack thereof. The speaker brings up the idea of kitchenettes. And how this was such a change in the way people could speak. A freedom against censorship. We had mentioned before communal ideas. We had mentioned industrialization. One of the things that happened was the major cities had a huge flocking of the peasant class. This put huge pressure on the Soviets to actually get housing going. They needed to place all of these people somewhere And with that, the creation of communalkas came about, or communal living spaces, houses, or, well, at the time, basically any form of building that could house multiple families at once. In some cases, these were said to have been mansions taken from the rich that were then reformatted. Rooms split up, living space divvied out, emergency overflow, housing. Around the time that Khrushchev came into power, That is when a a new form of housing came through called Khrushchevkas, houses or apartments, I should say, where individual families could live with some decent space at that. These kitchenettes allowed people to sit around and talk privately. In the 70s, we had Cuban rum. Everyone was in love with Fidel, with the Cuban Revolution, Che and his beret, a Hollywood star. We talked nonstop, afraid that they were listening in thinking they must be listening. There'd always be someone who'd halt in mid-conversation and point to the ceiling light or the power outlet with a little grin. Did you hear that, comrade lieutenant? It felt a little dangerous, a little bit like a game. We got a certain satisfaction out of leading these double lives. A tiny handful of people resisted openly, but many more of us were kitchen dissidents, going about our daily lives with our fingers crossed behind our backs. I couldn't help but include that quote because I feel like that's us. I feel like that's the people that want change. The people that have been speaking in favor of communism for a while now within the United States have probably felt like kitchen dissidents. I find it difficult to at least summarize everything we've gotten in this prologue 
and entry chapter. It's hard for me to speak on behalf of people that have lived and experienced things that I can't imagine. At times, I feel like an imposter sitting here and talking about them, hence why I'm not giving anyone hard theory. I'm not the expert, but I am using a platform that I have to try and share something that I feel deep down at my core. I feel like we need a change, and I'm hoping we can elevate stories, amplify voices of people that lived through it. And if my part in this whole story is just to bring a podcast to light that gets people seeing books that they otherwise wouldn't, then that's my role, and I hope to fulfill it. From a conversation with a university professor, at the end of the 90s, my students would laugh when I told them stories about the Soviet Union. They were sure that a new future awaited them. Now, it's a different story. Today's students have truly seen and felt capitalism, the inequality, the poverty, the shameless wealth. They've witnessed the lives of their parents who never got anything out of the plundering of our country, and they're oriented toward radicalism. They dream of their own revolution. They wear red t-shirts with pictures of Lenin and Che Guevara. There's a new demand for everything Soviet, for the cult of Stalin. Half of the people between the ages of 19 and 30 consider Stalin an unrivaled political figure, a new cult of Stalin in a country where he murdered at least as many people as Hitler? Hard information to swallow and digest there. But I think it speaks to something else as well. People are flocking to another strongman figure because their safety has been destroyed. As noted in that brief clip, and as you'll see in the entire conversation in the book, there is a large sellout factor to capitalism taking hold in Russia, in the Soviet Union, or ex-Soviet Union. People were unfamiliar with the cutthroat tactics, and because of it, were left in extreme poverty. The 90s was an extremely brutal time. And thank you to those that have shared stories of your family with me. I hope even from an outsider's perspective, I can try to give this the care the story needs. People's lives were uprooted and changed overnight. So when we talk about people wanting the old ways, wanting the dream back, I can't sit here and blame anyone. I want a dream back. I'd love to be working for something with the people together for a better tomorrow. But as it stands, as the clip said, we've seen the harsh reality of capitalism. And a world where wealth is definitely sliding in one direction, and I will tell you that direction is not me. I, the small business owner, am not the one that's getting any of that. As we saw with our recent pandemic, or current pandemic, I should say, money is going to those at the top. Amazon's making money when small businesses suffer. We're all living in a world where I think we're frustrated at the lack of terms that we can use, the lack of ideas we can chase. If we're going to continue living in a world where we vilify all aspects of socialism and communism, it's going to make it very hard for us to advance beyond what we have. Some last food for thought, if you will. Svetlana earlier mentioned traveling to a village where someone there is asking or being asked what freedom is. Some of the discourse goes on to say freedom is 
basically having lots of food. So someone that has 100 different types of salami offered is better than someone, or they're more free than someone that has only 10. Is that freedom? Is having more things making you free? Does having more things make you happy? Is it real happiness? Alexevich notes that at the fall of the Soviet Union, everything changed. The billboards, the clothing, the flags, people changed when communism fell. She says that people are somehow more colorful, but less human. What did that freedom, in quotes, what did that freedom do to people? I don't have a solid answer on any one of these ideas. I present my feelings and thoughts, and I encourage you to share yours as well. If you're interested, we might create a Twitter account so people can follow along there if that would be helpful. In the meantime, you can follow me over there at Kyle Paranormal. And you can find my links in the show notes or description below. This is my very first attempt at making a podcast book club, so I welcome all feedback. If we're moving too fast, too slow, or otherwise, let me know. If you're interested in a specific aspect from any of these chapters, we can definitely break that out into detail. If we have anyone out there that has personal ties or connections to anything we're discussing here, please feel free to get in touch. Check out the links again in the show notes to get the easiest way. Thank you, everybody, and expect an episode next week. I will be attempting to tackle the next three chapters. Bear with me, though. I do have a friend who's getting the physical copy of this book, so we should be able to compare notes and adjust these formats accordingly. Please stay safe and vigilant, everyone, especially to those in the United States. Keep your eyes on the news, check out what's going on, and most importantly of all, be good to each other. Hold people accountable. We can be the change we want to see. We just have to pursue the idea. Until next week. <laughs>